I got you now, sorry. Um, we're recording now. Um, <laughs> so, here's the thing. Um, does anyone know why it was important that Jesus came as a man? Can you name one reason? Do you think God could have saved us a different way? Probably however he wanted, right? Or he could have just torched the whole thing and started over, right? He could have. And Jesus had that option close to the end, and I'm glad he didn't choose that. Because I wouldn't have even existed at all. But here's the thing. Jesus came as a man, and it's really, really important that he did. Okay? We need to realize that first before we get to know him. It's really, really important that he did. So let's turn to Genesis 3 and 15. This is where the redemption story starts. In the middle of a curse. (laughs) which is pretty cool. So read 15. Because this is just the important part. We won't read the rest. He curses the serpent. And this is how he curses the serpent. Halfway through cursing the serpent, this is part of his curse. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That's why you see whenever there's any great move of God, women get liberated in the right way. To be women. Not to be more like men, but to be fully alive and fully women. Because Satan hates what women bring to the table. Think about it. Think about the fact that my wife, Jessie, right now is housing eternity in her belly. That's crazy. There's an eternal human being that's growing inside of her right now. Now, whether you have children or not in your life as a woman, you are a gateway for life. So what you speak and what you do is really, really important because God curses the serpent by putting a war between you and the devil. So remember that the devil fears you. Okay? Remember that the devil is afraid of you. Now... Why does he say this? Because this is the beginning of the redemption story. And you all know how it goes, right? It says later, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So Jesus, thousands of years later, ends up crushing the head of Satan through the fruit of a woman and finishes the war on the devil through the fruit of a woman. So the curse that's carried out on the serpent is finished through Jesus Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. And the amazing part about that is that through all the bad things that came out of what happened at the Garden of Eden, God seals up and plants the seed of the future redemption here. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus raises from the dead, who's the first person that he sees? A woman. And what time of day is it? You guys remember? It's the morning. It's the cool of the morning in a garden where he sees a woman and she's the first one to see the resurrected Christ, the second Adam. Is this ringing any bells for anyone? Mm -hmm. So the relationship between God 
and mankind is severed in the garden, and he's looking for them in the cool of the morning for relationship, right? That's how he used to walk with them. That's how he used to talk with them. And he restores first the woman who ate the fruit first. She's the one that now brings the fruit of the tree of life to mankind. She's the first witness of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he restores things in order in the garden. And even at that time, a, a woman's witness wasn't worth, worth anything in court. And he restores womankind to equal stature with mankind by making her the first witness of the resurrection. Sorry to all you reformed people in the room. If you're reformed, you're going to get that and you're going to be offended. You're welcome. All right. So here's the thing. The first Adam and the second Adam. And we've all heard this before, likely heard this before. First Adam and Eve fall. So Adam really means mankind. So mankind falls. The second Adam, Jesus, brings mankind to fruition. Now what did we lose in the garden? What did, sorry, what, what did Adam and Eve lose in the garden? Really practically in the story. What's that? Innocence. Innocence, yes. That's, that's almost exactly the same word as I'm going to get to. So, so they lost innocence, right. So because they lost innocence, they lost what? Why were they hiding? They felt ashamed. Shame of sin, right? So what does that break? Communion with God, right? Yeah. So the first thing they lose when they make this mistake is communion with God. So the first thing they lose is that common union with God. What's the second thing they lose? These are the two big ones. What's the second thing they lose? They get booted out and the big angel is guarding this, or a sword of fire, however you want to see it. They lose access to the tree of life, right? Mm -hmm. So they lose access to eternal life. So first they lose communion with God and then they lose access to eternal life. So Jesus coming as a man, how does he fix this? Really simple, open, obvious one, basic gospel stuff. He dies on the cross. Yep. <laughs> Good. He dies on the cross and restores communion with God. So he restores that common union with him. He restores the image of God in us through his work on the cross. He says, it is finished, right? And now through the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, we have full access to God. That's why you see the actual veil tear, right? When Jesus dies, says, it is finished. There's a big storm. There's an earthquake. The veil is torn. The access to God is open. But still something's missing, right? So we have communion with God, but what else did we lose? Eternal life. We lost access to the tree of life. So, yes, we've been forgiven. Yes, we now have access to God. But what else do we need in order to really have real union with God? Eternal life. Eternal life. And how, does, how do we find access to that? Through Jesus. Through Jesus and his resurrection. So we are restored completely through the second Adam, through the man the second Adam, to God through his death and resurrection because we get communion back. This is my body and this is my blood for you, right? Sitting at a table, 
Jesus has this intimate moment with, with his apostles. They have no idea what's going on. They think that Jesus is going to rule and reign as a political king in Jerusalem and kill the Romans and get rid of them. Like, wouldn't you think the same thing? Like, if you're oppressed and paying taxes to these guys, he's doing miracles all over the place, multiplying bread, just like God did in the wilderness. They're thinking, okay, like, when they're arguing about sitting in his right and left hand, it's not a spiritual conversation. It's a conversation about who's going to have the king's hand. Like, who's going to be in charge when he rules from Judea? They're not thinking, oh, I want to sit with him in heaven. They're thinking, I want to sit with him right now as I watch him murder and kill and remove the Romans from Jerusalem. Like, I want to be there when that happens. So it's a completely different conversation than you might think. So they have no idea what's going on, and then he dies, so they're really, really confused. Comes back from, comes back from the dead as a man, seated at the right hand of God as a man, so you can understand him. Now, here's some things about Jesus I just want to, like, I want to talk to you guys about, okay? Because I don't want you to get too far separated from his personality. Have you ever, like, you, you read the New Testament and, and you get into this mindset of, like, this is, like, an ancient text that I'm going through and it seems kind of dry and direct sometimes. Like, John gives away the fact that he's going to come back from the dead too early. Like, no, like, Western writer would ever do that. He's, like, four or five chapters in, and he's, like, and this is, he's talking about when he raised from the dead. And, like, if it's your first time reading it, you're, like, really? Like, like, you gave away the whole story in the first three chapters. But there's some really just, like, fun things that Jesus did. You can't, I can't imagine hanging out with the God of the universe, the creative God of the universe in man form and thinking he's boring. I'm tired of this lily white Jesus, this blonde haired, blue eyed, as much as I'd love for him to like look like my family. <laughs> like he was an ancient Near Eastern Jew, which probably means he's much darker than the Jews you see in New York or LA. I just got back from Israel and like they're Middle Eastern. They look completely different. He was earthy. He was stinky. And like I said, like he camped with his guys outside, sitting next to fires. He was full of rage at times. Do you ever think about that? Like you see these like little documentaries of Jesus, I like to call them, or these TV specials where Jesus walks into the temple and like kind of slowly, lightly <laughs> flips over the tables and he's completely calm. For, three day, for a few days before, for the, sorry, the night before Jesus does that, he fashions a whip. Do you ever think about that process when like, the apostles are watching him or the future apostles? They're sitting watching him the night before slowly make a whip. And they know Jesus isn't like a shepherd. They know like, he was a, he's a carpenter. Like, What's he putting this together for? He seemed quiet and a little weird today. <laughs> And then the next morning, he wakes up, and he throws the tables over, overturns the whole place, and this, the temple courts are full of people because it's a festival time. It's full of people. And Jesus is in an absolute rage. He is the only bull in this china shop, and nobody touches him. You ever think about that? There are guards with weapons. There's literally, there was literally a sign that Herod put up that said, if you desecrate this place, we will kill you. And it was in Hebrew, Greek, and Roman. Or Latin, sorry. So people knew this is a holy place, and Jesus goes in and doesn't care, and starts whipping 
at people. <laughs> and you have to imagine the livestock as well. Have you ever, like, it's, it's all well and good to, like, see them on TV. A lot of us don't have personal contact with livestock on a daily basis. They're large animals. Bulls and cows and sheep and goats and birds of all kinds in this room cutting loose because Jesus is overturning the whole place. So you can imagine livestock running around him, people in complete chaos, and guards standing around not knowing what to do, and Jesus at the center of the storm, and people are afraid to touch him. One man with a whip. So you can think about the force of personality that stepped into that room. Think about how much of a man he was that terrified people to touch him when he was just there with a whip. Now, think about another story. And one more thing about this. The cool part about this is he's flipping over all these tables, right? And it's because they're blocking access. I talked about this last night a little bit. But because they're blocking access to God through charging interest on exchanging money. So everyone came from a long distance, right? A lot of people came from a long distance, so they couldn't bring animals with them. So they pay for it. But you couldn't bring the image of Caesar into the temple. So they exchanged their normal Roman currency for temple currency. And everyone that exchanged the money would charge interest on that. So they'd have to use that temple currency to then purchase a sacrifice to access God. So essentially, they're charging interest to have a relationship with God. And that's where Jesus' fury really comes from. It's not the kind of anger that you and I could necessarily be trusted with. But sometimes. (laughs) And then at the end of this whole thing where he's flipping over all these tables and kicking people out of the temple, telling them to leave... There's, this, there's these boxes of birds. And he has the moment of kindness to say, take them out of here. Because he doesn't want these harmless animals to get crushed by the stampede. So in a complete rage, when he's kicking everyone else out of the temple, he takes a moment to say, make sure you just take those out of here. <laughs> so you see like the, the absolute fury and the kindness of Jesus all in one moment. And his kindness in that anger at the same time, because you can't separate the two. You can't separate wrath and love. And I explain it like this to people. Um, And I heard this in a sermon one time, so I'm stealing this. But um, when it comes to my wife, Jessie, people have asked me before in like weird conversations, long conversations that go into late night, like, would you like... What would you feel like if you killed someone? What would it be like? Would you kill someone? And I'm like, you know, probably not. Don't really want to know what that feels like. And, you know, I'm like, all, every generation of my family except for me fought in some war in the United States. And then the question in my mind is, would I kill someone if they hurt my wife or my children with a smile on my face? So, you can't separate the love I have for them and the wrath I would have for their protection. See, in Jesus, in that moment walking into the temple, you can't separate love and wrath. You can't make Jesus a not angry person. You can't make him mild-mannered in that moment because his love for people and his desire to be connected with them is being blocked by the people in between. So if you think about it, if he is all joy and all love, he is in a pure rage 
with all joy and all love all at the same time. <laughs> that's pretty wild. And that's fully human. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you kill to just feel that in one moment? Wouldn't you? Like, how alive would you feel in that moment? <laughs> just imagine it. Like, we can't really get there because we're broken in a lot of ways and we're compartmentalized and our rage, our justice is skewed. But, but imagine how alive he was in that moment. And how when he is in the middle of a storm in Galilee, asleep, and I just got back from Galilee, it's a big lake, right? They're out in the middle of this lake, and they will drown if the boat sinks, and he's fast asleep in the back, and he wakes up and tells the storm to stop with these guys that don't know he's God yet. Remember, they're not believers yet. Like, he hasn't risen from the dead. They're not, like, technically, like, saved, like we would say. They're just following a rabbi. And as soon as he tells the storm to calm down, he says, peace be still, and shouts it in a roar. All the apostles and all the disciples look at each other and go, what kind of man is this? Imagine yourself in that situation. And this is a man that is fully alive and fully human, and he is the second Adam, taking complete dominion over nature in that moment. Because Adam, in the beginning, had dominion over nature. And Jesus is reclaiming it in that moment. And the Jews are thinking this, that are on the boat with him. They're thinking, this guy has control of everything. He's in charge. And he's fully alive and fully man. And there's one more story I want to tell you about Jesus. You remember when... Um, uh, Jesus rose, brought Lazarus back from the dead. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's this big, like, thing. He's, like, not making people happy. He sits around for a while, waits till he dies so he can basically show them how incredible he is. Right? <laughs> that he is the resurrection and the life. There's a section where it talks about Jesus weeping, right? And people really love this. They're like, he was connecting with you know, he was connecting with these guys, like he was like he was weeping, he was sad. A better translation of that is more like a battle horse preparing for battle and snorting. So you can imagine that kind of weeping. And then when you see like these little TV movies of Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. It's the same Greek word that is used for a horse in a rage in battle, snorting. It's not like, Lazarus, please come out. He's shouting at the top of his lungs, Lazarus, come forth! In anger at death. That's really different. That's a different person, I think, than we want to picture him as. But that's the kind of person that I would die for. That's the kind of person that I would follow into this battle that we call life. That's the kind of person that I'm feeling really safe in his hands. I'm not feeling safe in flimsy Jesus' hands. I'm not feeling safe in TV movie Jesus' hands. I'm not. I I don't see that character and think, this is nice. I wouldn't die for that person. It's, he's not, that person, that made-up Jesus isn't worth it, and that made-up Jesus can't save you. The only person that can save you is the real Jesus, the man. That, that 
brought life into the world. Because sin entered the world through Adam, right? And now, grace and truth enter through Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? Zero. We were born into our sins, the Bible says. It's not about the action. It's about who we are as people. And Jesus transforms that and makes you something completely different through grace. So you don't have to sin to be a sinner. You don't have to do the action of sin to be a sinner. It's a matter of who you are as a person, what Adam made you. The second Adam makes you something completely different. And you're born through the Holy Spirit, a brand new life. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he's super, super confused, right? And that is a really confusing statement, to be born again by the Spirit. To be like Jesus. Because as in 1 John it says, like I talked about last night, we're like Jesus in this world. How? You have to follow the real one. If you're struggling with making disciples, if you're struggling with the idea of church planting, if you're struggling with the idea of walking in power, or walking in the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis, I want to encourage you, open up the Gospels and spend time there for six months straight and read it for what it actually says. I do this with my, with my guy disciples a lot because um, a lot of men find it difficult to connect with Jesus unless they're on mission. You know what I mean? Like, they understand missions trip. They understand going to the 1040 window and dying for Jesus. They understand that. Um, but a lot of times they don't understand daily life through the process of Jesus' life. If you think about the process of church, like think about, uh, and ladies, you can kind of connect to this too. Like if you've dated uh, like just a man, you can connect with this or like ever like been around them on a consistent basis. Like all the things that you do in church are not necessarily things that a guy would choose to do with his Sunday. Like, let's sing together. <laughs> and then let's sit for 40 minutes and listen to someone talk. Like, that's not my first choice. I've got to be honest with you. But when, when I can introduce them, this is how I introduce them. I, get, I tell them to get a, like a note-taking Bible where they're going to write in a lot. I say, take a blue highlighter and take a pink highlighter. All right? And I want you to go through the Gospels, and every time Jesus says something that would seem offensive, that would seem rude, that would seem cutting, that would seem angry, I want you to highlight it in blue. Or does something in that manner. Because what he does in Mark is really important as well. And I want you to really put yourself in the mindset of that situation, and think about it. Like, think about the demoniac he casts the demons out of, right? Really incredible, powerful moment. It's kind of rude that he sends them away. The guy's like, I want to follow you. And he's like, no, go tell your family. Like, no pastor would do that now. <laughs> like, you'd be like, okay, yeah, as long as you tithe, all good. Stick around. <laughs> and tell everyone your story and tell them I did it. He's like, you know what, just go tell them what the Lord has done for you. He doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, go, just go there and tell them. And then I said, highlight in pink every, like, every compassionate moment, every nice moment that he has. Something that you consider, like, really sweet. And I think you'll be surprised at how much blue you find in the Gospels. 
You have to think of a man that's parachuting in to enemy territory and taking over. And the devil is hiding from him around every turn. He's on mission. He's already dead in his mind. And he's making the enemy run scared. And you have to think of everything that he does in the light of compassion and love. Okay? So let me... Let me reorient you to this, right? What compassion and love from a God perspective actually is. Because if everything Jesus does is out of compassion and love, even his fury and anger and even frustration with his disciples, then our idea of compassion and love might be different than the world has told us. Because think of it this way giving somebody grace in a moment where, or giving somebody mercy in a moment where they need correction is not love. Am I right or am I wrong? You guys, you guys still do feedback of the world race, right? Yeah. Right. Sometimes it's totally incorrect. Sometimes it's not. It's just a humbling experience either way, right? But it would be wrong for me to give somebody mercy and let something slide, so to speak. You have to think of Jesus in terms of coming to earth, and he's got three years of ministry, right? And everybody's addicted to the drug of themselves. So he's having a three-year intervention. When you sit down with someone in an intervention, you don't say, hey, heroin once a week will be fine. Okay? <laughs> Let's just cut back on the heroin intake. He's saying you have to die. You have to let it all go. You have to remove it from yourself. You have to sell everything. Move on and follow me. It's completely different. And that's compassion. That's the most compassionate thing he could do. So... When you're looking through the Gospels, I want you to think of Jesus' emotion. Think of Jesus' personality. Like, think of the fact, and you can read this in some of John Eldridge's stuff. He, like, really sees Jesus as a human really, really well. Think about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, right? He hasn't seen any of his disciples yet. And he's strolling along the beach at Galilee. And they're gone back to fishing because, like, what do you do? Like, they know he's dead. They're thinking maybe he's alive. They're not really sure what to do next, so they're like, let's just go do a job. And he's strolling along the beach, and he shouts out to them like a tourist, catch anything? Like, if you've ever walked the piers of California, like, and you just walk by people, you see them fishing, like, oh, catch anything? That's a really weird thing to say, if you just rose from the dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, people saw you die, and you're back from the dead. You've, you've stolen the keys of death in Hades, and now you hold them in your hand. And I'm sure he's immensely joyful about that and excited, and he plays a practical joke on his disciples. He goes, throw the net on the other side. And he has so much command in his voice, they're not 100% sure who he is. They throw it over. They get a boat-breaking, net-breaking load again. Peter realizes who he is and puts his clothes on. And then jumps in the water. This is always like a portion of scripture that confuses me. <laughs> like, I never really get that. He was just out in his undies, like, sure, in his ancient Near Eastern, like, hairy glory. But, like, like this is just a crazy moment, right? And then he just says, come and have breakfast. He could tell them all the secrets of the kingdom. And these guys are so excited about the catch, they take time, like, on the side to, like, count the fish. Like, John gives an exact number. It's like 432 or something like that. Like, 
The resurrected Christ is cooking you breakfast, and you're like, hey, one second, we've got to count these fish. <laughs> like, what a weird moment. It's so, it's so human. It's so unbelievably human and so alive and so real and so interactive. And this is why people were obsessed with Jesus. He wasn't some stale character floating around that everything was easy for. Everything that he did for you, he did it on purpose. Everything that he chose to do, he did it because he loved you. And he chose to do it as a man. He limited and restrained himself so much because he wanted to to replace your idea of what humanity could actually be. So stop saying, I'm just a person. Stop saying, I'm only human. Because you belong to a different family now. You don't belong to the old Adam and the old Eve. The ones that screwed it all up. You belong to a brand new family. And by blood, you belong to that family. Not just royalty, but the only real royalty. So that's why Paul the Apostle says, conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of your calling. What's your calling? To be fully alive. To be fully human through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and to destroy the works of the devil. He's on the run. Why does the Bible say the gates of hell will not prevail against my church? A lot of pastors use this when they're struggling, right? Like we're under attack, right? Like gates don't run around and like smack people. (laughs) Think about what a gate does. What does a gate do? keeps things out. It's defensive. It is primarily a defensive structure. It's a passageway in and out, but in a war, which we're in, it's a defensive structure. What's the devil trying to protect himself from? The glorious bride of Christ in resurrection power. He's afraid of you. You ever wondered why he catches you with stupid stuff? You ever wonder why he tries to undermine who you are as a person? You ever notice that when the devil tempts Jesus, he goes straight for his identity as the Son of God? And have you ever noticed Jesus' favorite title for himself? Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. He says it over and over and over again. So here's the thing. I know you guys have lunch now, so I'll wrap this up. And give you a couple seconds just to think about this. And if you guys have any questions, um, I'll give you a couple minutes for questions right at the end. If you don't have any, you can, or if you're embarrassed, you can come up and ask. Um, but here's the thing. The devil wants you to think. And he's real. He's a person. He's not some force. I used to have nightmares as a kid. And my dad chased werewolves out of the house. To give you an idea. He's a real, real person that wants to destroy you and hates you. (coughs) Remember that you are someone different now. And that sin is not you. It's far more like a parasite that needs to be rooted out and burned out of your new person. So, 
I just want to give this to you guys. I know a lot of you are single. A lot of you are going to be stepping into relationships where there's going to be temptation. A lot of you are going to be stepping into life where there's temptation to chase money. There's temptation, temptation to chase prestige or people liking you, etc., etc. The devil, the devil's going to try and water down the gospel that you've seen with your own eyes. Stay in the gospels. Find out who Jesus really is and take him at his word as a man. What he actually says is what he actually means. All right? Don't let anyone water it down for you. Because those words have power. And rebuke the enemy and he'll flee from you. Keep him on the run. And it doesn't say he'll flee from you, just you. You have to realize that when Paul's writing these letters, he's writing to groups of people. And the idea of you was completely different in those days than it is now. You is very individualistic to us, right? He's saying you, as a people, respond to the enemy by resisting him and digging in your heels. Respond to him as the church. Respond to him as the body of Christ. Because he cannot resist and he will break every single time. So confess your sins to one another. Move forward. Attack the enemy. Get on offense. You have the ball. You've had the ball for 2,000 years. And people are watching. Those that have already run their race are waiting for you. To unleash heaven on hell. Alright? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus, the man, is at the front of this army with a rad tattoo on his leg. <laughs> it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And wears many crowns of the kings that he's destroyed. That's why it says he wears many crowns, because there's only one worthy of wearing those crowns. When kings would conquer a city in the ancient Near East, they would take the crown and wear it themselves. They would drag the, the king that they had just killed or that they had butchered in one way or another, usually cutting off their thumbs or hands, and drag them behind them in a procession to show everyone I'm in charge now. Jesus makes a public declaration of dragging sin behind him in conquering glory to show you how much he loves you, in dragging death behind him in victory. It has no power to defeat you anymore. It has no sting. It has no authority. He's wearing the crown now. And that's somebody I could follow. That's somebody I could die for. And that's somebody, maybe someday I will die for. <laughs> On purpose or not. <laughs> so, just keep that in mind. And I, I, wanna, I want you over the next few months in your transition, this is the one thing I want you to do. Read the Gospels over and over and over and over and over and over again and get to know Jesus the man. Get to know Jesus the person, okay? And follow him. And once you get to know and hear how he sounds, it's going to be a lot easier not to water everything else down, okay? Cool. Anyone have any questions? Alright guys, uh, bless you in Jesus' name, bless your future, and can't wait to hear Jesse speak tonight, it's going to be fun.